I serve as a park ranger at a park that seems to have far more playground than actual park. This means there's tons of child traffic most days, but of course my most days, this was back in the year of 2018, long before any crazy pandemic of any virus. There was even more on the weekends and on days that school was out. I'm older now, so my kids are grown and gone. So I enjoy my job when I got to see kids nearly every day. They didn't really seem to notice me though. I just kind of blended into the background. Which is why it caught my attention one day, when on a very busy weekend, there was a little girl at the far end of the park that was smiling and waving at me. I looked around to make sure she wasn't waving to a friend or a parent or something, but no, she was looking straight at me and waving. I smiled and went back kind of chuckling to myself since most of these kids don't pay me any mind. My mood seemed lighter for the rest of the day after that. The following day, which was Sunday, there was just as much of a population of kids at the playground. They were all scattered about and I remember, to my surprise, there was that same little girl that had waved at me the day prior. She waved and smiled just as enthusiastically. My heart melted and I waved back. After all the stuff I saw in various areas of law enforcement spanned over the years, things like that restored my faith in humanity. I got two days off and came back on a Wednesday, making my rounds as usual. There were some kids, just not as many, a very common feat during the weekend and weekday. But I came back to that one playground, and there was that still that same little girl smiling. She was always wearing that same outfit, and she was standing in the exact same spot. That's when I began to feel differently, and even felt an open pit in my stomach. So I smiled and waved back to her when I noticed that she never stopped smiling or waving. The only thing that seemed to have changed is that she was smiling bigger than the very first time that I saw her, and maybe she seemed more thin. She was near back to a cluster of bushes that seemed to be right next to the general area, but were actually a bit further back. I decided to approach her to see what the real issue was, and as I did, I was hit with a horrifying odor. The stench of death and rotting flesh. There's a rope that was tied around her neck and her left arm in such a way that she would stand upright and have her arm raised slightly when the bush swayed in the breeze. She looked like she was waving. Without getting into any gruesome details, she had been horribly mutilated to show that she was smiling and waving again. Since I dealt with children, this made me disgusted. I got very dizzy and I had to sit down. How was I the only one who had seen her since Saturday? I immediately called out and filed a report. Even my superiors thought my story was strange and even suspicious because they too wondered how I was the only one who had seen her. I wish I had a better explanation and I feel like there were two deaths during the whole situation, hers and my faith in people. This incident was relayed to me by my dad just a few years ago. My dad is a very level-headed, grounded man. He said he didn't say anything to anyone for a while because he wanted to keep this incredible experience to himself. My father lives in Southern California and was up visiting my stepmother's his wife's mother and father. Grandpa was dying and I guess dad just needed some time alone so he decided to take a walk. It was a pleasant day, not too hot, 
just perfect for a hike. Dad said he had never taken this direction before, but that he had decided to try it this time. He said he had been walking uphill for some time just enjoying the sights and fresh air when he decided he needed a rest. He saw a down log on the side of the road, the side that goes down towards the river, when he heard a very unusual sound. He described it as almost a scolding sound, a TTT combined with a whistle. Immediately he became very still and the hair on the back of his neck stood up he also reported goosebumps. He said this noise was repeated again, and he said there was no mistaking the meaning. He had to leave the area fast. He said he got up and looked around all while moving away from the area heading downhill toward home, which was a good two miles away. He said he moved at a fairly good pace, but did not dare run. He said this was all kind of a sixth sense kind of thing. Inborn, you might say. The noise was never repeated. He was not followed either. In my early days, I was a hunter, one with a deep connection to nature's rhythms. The thrill of the hunt, the camaraderie shared with fellow hunters, the encounters with majestic creatures, all of these were integral parts of my life. I knew the forest like the back of my hand, and my rifle was an extension of myself. I was part of a tradition that spanned generations, a tradition that revered the art of tracking and the thrill of the chase. Yet, as the years went by, I began to witness changes in the world around me. Climate change brought erratic weather patterns, habitat loss accelerated, and the populations of the creatures I once pursued dwindled. I couldn't ignore the signs of a shifting environment, nor the responsibility that seemed to weigh heavier on my shoulders with each passing day. It was during a hunting trip deep in the heart of the wilderness that my perspective began to shift. I had ventured far from civilization, seeking solace in the familiarity of the forest. It was there that I encountered a rare and endangered creature, a glimpse of which seemed like a miracle. Its fur gleamed in the dappled sunlight, and its eyes held a wisdom that belied its vulnerability. In that moment, something within me stirred a realization that the balance of the natural world was at a critical juncture. My encounter with this magnificent creature triggered a cascade of thoughts. As I gazed into its eyes, I felt a connection that transcended the boundaries of predator and prey. It wasn't just about the ethics of hunting anymore. It was about the larger implications of our actions on the delicate tapestry of life. This encounter marked the beginning of a transformative journey. I knew I couldn't continue as I had before, blind to the consequences of my pursuits. Driven by a desire to make a positive impact, I decided to shift my focus toward conservation efforts. I immersed myself in collaboration with local wildlife experts, researchers, and conservation organizations. Together, we endeavored to understand the challenges facing endangered species, to protect their habitats, and to combat the pervasive threat of poaching. The transition wasn't without its struggles. I faced resistance from my former hunting peers, who saw my change in direction as a betrayal of tradition. Skeptics questioned my sincerity, believing my newfound advocacy to be a mere phase. Internally, I grappled with a sense of identity crisis. Who was I now, if not the hunter who had roamed these woods for years? 
But as I ventured deeper into the world of conservation, I began to find my place. I realized that the intricacies of ecosystems were far more fascinating and interconnected than I had ever imagined. The delicate balance required to maintain them was a puzzle that challenged my intellect and my spirit. The joy of witnessing successful conservation efforts, even the smallest victories, ignited a fire within me that I hadn't felt in years. The pivotal moment came during a late-night stakeout in a remote part of the forest. We were monitoring a region known for its endangered species when an eerie stillness settled over the woods. The hairs on the back of my neck stood on end as I felt a presence, a primal sensation that sent a shiver down my spine. And then I saw it a figure, towering and powerful, standing on two legs like a colossal being from legend. It was Bigfoot, a creature that had eluded scientific explanation for generations. My heart raced, not just from fear, but from a profound sense of awe. The moment was surreal, a testament to the mysteries that still thrived within the wilderness. As Bigfoot disappeared into the night, I knew that my journey had come full circle. The hunter in me had transformed into a guardian, a protector of the delicate balance that sustained life. I had found a new purpose, one that extended beyond the thrill of the hunt. The realization struck me with a force that shook my very being my role as a conservation advocate was far more impactful than my past identity as a hunter. And so, under the starlit sky, I pledged to continue my mission to stand between the creatures I once pursued and the threats that sought to erase them. As I walked away from that night's encounter, a sense of gratitude and determination coursed through me. The wilderness had shaped me once as a hunter and now it was shaping me anew as a protector of its mysteries. I am Sergeant Marcus, a National Guard agent specializing in biochemical threats. When the call came in about a remote research facility in Montana that had gone dark, I was dispatched to investigate. I remember feeling a strange sense of apprehension as we boarded the chopper, the usual humdrum replaced by a tense silence. None of us had a clue about what we were walking into. The facility was located in a desolate part of Nevada, a blip of concrete and steel in the midst of arid nothingness. We landed just as the sun began to set, bathing the facility in an eerie, foreboding glow. We made our way in, weapons drawn, nerves on edge. The silence was deafening. The complex was a labyrinth of corridors and rooms, all eerily deserted. It was as if the facility staff had vanished into thin air. We made our way to the central lab, where we found the cause of the radio silence. The room was in complete disarray, papers scattered, lab equipment overturned, and at its center, a swirling vortex of energy that pulsed with a sickly light. It was a portal unlike anything I'd ever seen. A low growl echoed through the room, and a creature unlike any I had ever seen emerged from the portal. It was grotesque, its form defying the laws of nature. Its eyes glowed a malevolent red, and saliva dripped from its gnarled, sharp-toothed mouth. It roared, a sound that shook the very foundations of the facility, and charged at us. We opened fire, bullets tearing into the creature, but it seemed unfazed. More creatures followed, each more horrifying than the last. The facility became a battlefield, 
the air filled with the sounds of gunfire and the roars of the monstrous beings. But we held our ground, fighting tooth and nail against an enemy we barely understood. In the midst of the chaos, our tech specialist, Private Thompson, worked feverishly to reverse-engineer the portal. Sweat poured down his face as he manipulated the alien tech, trying to find a way to close the portal. I covered him, bullets flying from my weapon, each shot taking down a creature. Time seemed to stretch, each second in eternity. Finally, Thompson shouted, I've got it. He hit a button, and the portal began to shrink. The creatures roared in defiance, their hideous faces twisted in rage. But it was too late. The portal collapsed in on itself, leaving nothing but the cold, harsh fluorescent lights of the lab. We were battered and bruised, but alive. The creatures were gone, the portal closed. The facility was silent once more. But the memory of those creatures of the portal was seared into my mind, a constant reminder of the unknown threats that lurk in the shadows. I am Sergeant Marcus, a National Guard agent. I defended humanity against a threat from another dimension, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. When my dad was a kid, he and my grandpa went to my grandpa's land to prepare the soil for planting crops. Bored, my dad wandered off to a nearby stream where he saw a bunch of human-like dolls playing around in the water. He said they looked like adults, only smaller, with proportions like dolls, not sure what exactly that means. They splashed around in the water, and at times it looked like they were even walking on it. They signaled at him to come and play with them, and my dad ran over excitedly. He said he played with them for a while when my grandpa noticed that he had wandered off and went to find him. When my grandpa found my dad seemingly playing alone by the stream, getting all wet, he got super mad and dragged him away. Apparently, my grandpa and grandma were never able to the duens whenever my dad would point them out. My dad still recalls looking back while my grandpa yanked him away and seeing the duens waving goodbye at him. After that, my dad started seeing the duens around the house. They'd pop out from behind walls during dinner, and my dad would try to feed them scraps of food, much to my grandparents' annoyance. Eventually, they got worried and took him to a local curandera. She did a little ritual and told him to keep a cigarette behind his ear for a week. And then, the duens were gone. He never saw them again. My dad swears it's all true, even though no one believes him and he's embarrassed about even telling the story. The only reason he told me it was because my mom teased him about it the other day, and I forced it out of him. I love these kinds of stories and really wanted to share. If you have any Duen stories, please share. I'd love to hear them. My aunts and uncles say Duens aren't always so friendly, and told me some other creepy stories about them. My best friend Vinny and I were out riding our motor scooter on a beautiful sunny day. We had been coasting downhill when the road started to rise, so we kicked on the motor, approaching a level overlook area of a clear-cut about the size of two football fields. Before us, at the far end of the field, down below near the trees, something astonishing caught our eyes. A massive creature arose from a fetal sleeping position, it was a Bigfoot. 
It looked straight at us before swiftly heading south with its arms swinging. As it passed a stump, it took one giant step up into the forest and disappeared from view. We almost fell off our scooter, scrambling to grab our camera and binoculars while trying to process what we had just witnessed. The creature was huge, with a flat face that clearly wasn't a gorilla. Vinny insisted that we explore the area, so we carefully walked down several feet of clear-cut debris to the spot where the Bigfoot had been sleeping. All we found were impressions where the creature had been lying down, but nothing else. We noticed that the stump it had passed was eight feet tall, and the creature had been chest-high over it. The single step it took into the forest was at least three feet tall. We were both in awe and terrified at the same time. It was October 1993, and my cousin Jane and I were excited to embark on an elk hunting trip on Vinegar Hill. The area was known for its abundance of elk, and we were hoping to bag a big one. Little did we know that our hunting trip would turn into an unforgettable adventure. As we trekked along the creek, we came across a large muddy spot. To our surprise, we found five enormous Bigfoot tracks leading into the mud. Each track measured 20 inches long, and they were spaced far apart. Jane and I exchanged puzzled glances, wondering if what we were seeing was real. The following year, during elk bow hunting season, we found ourselves back in the same area. The memory of the Bigfoot tracks still fresh in our minds, we couldn't help but feel a little uneasy. As we hunted in the daylight around 2 p.m., we suddenly heard a loud, piercing eek sound echoing through the forest. Startled, we both dashed back to camp, our hearts pounding. At sunset, our friend Jeremy joined us at camp. As we discussed the day's events, Jeremy noticed movement by a bush in between three trees. He squinted, trying to make out what he was seeing. In the fading light, he saw a dark, shaded figure moving through the trees. It was tall, around six and a half to seven feet, and walked upright like a human. At first, Jeremy thought it might be his brother, but as the figure disappeared into the woods, he realized it was something else entirely. We couldn't help but think back to the Bigfoot tracks we had found the previous year. Could it be that we had just seen the elusive creature responsible for those massive footprints? We later learned that the area was honeycombed with mines, raising the question of whether these creatures used them as shelter. Though we never had another encounter with the mysterious figure, our elk hunting trips on Vinegar Hill would forever be tinted with a sense of wonder and curiosity about the legendary Bigfoot. While on a deer hunting trip, my father stopped the vehicle on the side of the road to have lunch. As myself and my three brothers ate, I noticed movement several hundred yards away out of my peripheral vision. I realized that something was up in a tree near the very top of a huge pine tree where the branches are just beginning to grow at the edge of the timber cutting area. The area had just recently been logged. I looked at it with binoculars and was frightened when I realized that it was not a bear, but a huge man-like creature picking something from the treetop. I looked at it for several minutes. It was very dark brown and had its legs and at least one arm wrapped around the tree. It kept reaching up and grabbing stuff like it was collecting something. 
Then suddenly it turned to look in my direction when I saw the face very clearly. It had no hair near the eyes and nose which looked humanoid and definitely did not have a snout like a bear at all. Then it did a double look then realized that we were watching it, and without any notice just pushed itself away from the tree and free fell at least sixty feet to the ground with its feet and body staying in the prone position all the way. When it landed it made a very loud crashing sound into the freshly logged clear cut. My father screamed at us to hurry and get into the vehicle, and we drove away fast, and he never talked about it to me again. My brothers did not see it because they were looking in the wrong direction with their binoculars. Very spooky, though. It was the winter of 2020. I was driving north on Highway 21 at approximately 10.10 p.m., just outside of Hillsborough, Missouri just past Jefferson College. I was just passing the northbound off-ramp from Hayden Road onto northbound Highway 21 at mile marker 169.6. I'm not sure of the day of the week. I work the night shift every weekday and also work the same shift every other weekend, so all of the nights just seemed to run together. I just remember it was very cold and the road was deserted. I was the only car in the north or southbound lanes for as far as I could see. This is the same route I have taken to work every night for the past eight plus years, so I know the road very well. The dash of my car showed the ambient temperature is only 20 degrees Fahrenheit, but standing outside it felt even colder. It was clear, with no wind, rain, or snow. It was a clear, bitterly cold night. Just before mile marker 169.6, I noticed a rather tall, thin guy standing on the right-hand shoulder of the road under the streetlight. He stood facing me as I headed north. I slowed as I came upon him out of caution, but was not dumb enough to come to a complete stop. He was standing completely still, not walking or moving at all. I have seen other people walking along the side of this highway at night from time to time before so I did not think too much about seeing someone this night, other than the fact that this night was so bitterly cold. As I approached he stood completely motionless. He was very poorly dressed for the cold. He was wearing only a dark color faded hoodie and dark colored, faded pants of some sort. I cannot remember if they were jeans or sweatpants. They had no holes or rips in them, but I remember that his whole appearance looked rather shabby. He had his head covered with the hoodie and kept his head pointed down enough so that I could not see his face. I could not see any sign of breath being exhaled into the bitterly cold night air from under his hoodie. This was really creepy. He stood there, completely motionless with his hands hanging to his sides. I remember thinking to myself that if I were out in this kind of cold that was poorly dressed, I would certainly keep myself moving to try to stay warm. But this guy was standing completely motionless, not walking, not swinging his arms or moving his hands or fingers or legs at all. He stood completely still, like a statue. Another very odd thing was that he wore no gloves, so his fingers had to be freezing. He did not have either of his hands in his hoodie pocket or his pant pockets for warmth. The hoodie seemed to fit his frame proportionally well except the sleeves were too short. His arms were way too long for the sleeves. 
I could see maybe three 3.5 inches of the bare forearm from the bottom of his hoodie cuff to the top of his hand which looked odd. Everything else seemed to fit okay, but his arms were way too long for the sleeves. This guy was tall. Compared to the mile marker sign which was behind him, I would say that he had to stand 6 foot 9 inches tall or more. As I slowly drove past him and watched him it became one of those moments when time seemed to slow down. It was as if it all happened in slow motion. I can remember a lot of detail and how he just continued to stand there in the cold completely motionless as I drove past him, never turning his head or moving any part of his body in any way. After I passed him I could still see him in my rear view mirror standing there on the shoulder of the highway in the same spot illuminated by the street light above. He still remained there completely motionless, like a statue, not moving at all, his hands still hanging at his sides, his body completely motionless, not even a finger moved. I kept glancing into my rear view mirror to take another look at him until I rounded the corner and finally lost sight of him. I never saw him move the entire time. I got this rather ominous dark foreboding feeling as I passed him. If what I saw were some kind of ghost or demon or specter or whatever you want to call it, it certainly was not ghostly in appearance at all and looked as solid and as real as you or me. I still do not know what it is that I saw that night, but I hope I never see it again. It really freaked me out. I was about 16 years old at home alone for the night. I fell asleep just fine, but I woke up later at around 3. I couldn't fall back asleep, and then I started hearing this weird high-pitched ring in my ears. It kept getting louder, and then out of nowhere my door starts creaking open. It's the loudest door on earth, and I hear really slow dragging footsteps walking into my room. I turned to see if anyone was there, and the doorway is completely empty and I heard the footsteps start moving towards my bed with the ringing in my ears getting louder. I flipped out and rolled over facing away from the footsteps feeling pretty helpless. I thought it went away when I heard the stepping stop until I felt something sit on my bed. I honestly have never prayed harder in my life. Eventually it just kind of stopped all at once, and I just laid there wide awake for the rest of the night. I told my mom about it a day later, and she said that she used to hear the same dragging footsteps too. I changed rooms away from the basement after that. When I was around eight years old my family and I lived in this old house that always gave me the creeps. Especially this one room that was kept as our study. Every time I'd walk in or pass this room I just felt yucky and had the most intense feeling that I was being watched by someone that hated me being in there. Anyways, fast forward a few months, and my father decided that he was going to make the study room mine as I was sharing a room with my younger brother. I begged him to give it to my younger brother instead, I was the eldest so I should get to pick. It ended up being my room. First night in this room ended up being my last. This part I remember like it was literally yesterday. My dad came in and said goodnight and proceeded to turn off my bedroom light. As soon as he left the room I felt that intense foreboding feeling I had had every other time I had been in this room. Except that this time I was different. It was like I could feel a set of eyes on me. 
I pulled my blankets up over me as I was that scared. After about 30 seconds the blankets started being pulled down and left me staring into my room with no apparent reason or cause. I looked around quickly and then pulled the blankets back over my head and again. Blankets started to be pulled off me. By this stage I was scared out of my wits. I remember telling myself that it was probably just my cat playing around, but I looked under my bed and around the room and my cat was not in my room. I then told myself that I'm going to pull the blankets back up over my head, but if something starts to pull off my blankets, then I'm out of here, no matter what my father says. I pulled the blankets back over my head slowly, whilst looking around the room for anything that could be doing this to me. After another 30 seconds, my blankets began to be pulled off me, and this time I booked it out of my room so fast it was unreal. By this stage I was in tears of fear and my dad couldn't console or convince me to go back into that room. This all is 100% true and I remember it like it happened a week ago when it was in fact well over 20 years ago. Also my brother and I had reoccurring night terrors in this house. Someone broke into the house and they broke in by smashing the window to the study room. The room that was foreboding and haunted they however cut themselves so severely on the window of the study room that they left empty-handed. There was loads of blood all over the window and side of the house where they had tried to crawl in through the smashed window and into the study room. That room was just wrong. My family lived in Vermont for several years in a small town called Northfield south of Montpelier. There's a local legend in Northfield of a thing known as the Pigmen. The story has multiple versions as most do, but some parts are always the same. Back in 1951, the night before Halloween, this 17-year-old kid named Sam Harris went out on his own with a basket of eggs to cause some mischief. Nobody knows exactly what happened to him, just that he never came home and was never found. Years later, some high school kids were out drinking behind the school one night during a dance when this thing came walking out of the woods on two human legs. It was naked, covered in white hair, and was wearing a hollowed-out pig's head like some grotesque mask. Naturally, the kids tore out of there and went and told people. Word spread and some farmer admitted he'd seen a figure matching that description digging through his garbage one night. Some pigs had also gone missing recently. More sightings were made of the pigmen, as it became known, but many times the claims were just kids wanting to get attention. Now, whether this thing is Sam Harris or this thing ate Sam Harris, nobody in town knows for sure. But what they do know is that it isn't afraid of people, and it really likes to eat meat. There's a place just outside of Northfield known as the Devil's Washbowl, with a river and waterfalls and several caves. After more sightings of the pigmen were made out by the washbowl, some people went investigating and found that one cave, in particular, was littered with animal bones, some of which were pigs. It got around that they'd found the lair of the pigmen, and it became popular for teens to go out to the devil's washbowl at night and try to catch sight of him. My sister and a couple of her friends went out to the devil's washbowl their senior year. They took sleeping bags and flashlights and all the gear you take to go camping. I wasn't there to give a first-hand account of what transpired. I was only eight at the time. 
I can only tell you what was told to me. There were six or eight of them, depending on who you ask, all couples. They picked several caves, one for each pair. My sister and her boyfriend were in their cave. She was rolling out their sleeping bags, and he was trying to start a fire when they heard some shouts and then screaming from one of the other caves. When they got there, the girl was curled up in a ball in the farthest corner of the cave, and her boyfriend was nowhere to be found. She told them that the pigmen had come trudging into their cave, completely undaunted by their presence. The guy had started shouting at it, both to drive it away and to get the other's attention. The pigmen casually picked up a large rock and struck the guy in the side of the head with it, knocking him unconscious. It picked him up, slung him over its shoulder, and shambled out of the cave just moments before the rest arrived. Nobody had seen it exit the cave, nor seen signs of it at all. They did find the rock lying on the cave floor with blood on it, and bare footprints in some soft creek mud outside. The girls all drove into town and went straight to the police. The remaining boys, whether it was two or three of them, grabbed flashlights and makeshift weapons and scoured the woods around the area. The footprints disappeared at the edge of the road, and they lost the trail there. Search parties were set up. Police and K-9 units in a big coordinated effort, including several other adjoining townships' police forces. A couple days later, some articles of the guy's clothes were found by a search dog. They had been left torn and scattered in an abandoned farmhouse a town over. The missing teen's photo was put up in the area, and one guy came forward. He said the other night he'd awakened to the sound of someone lurking outside his house. He checked out his kitchen window, and someone was rummaging through the trash can by his garage. The person was only wearing a faded and ripped pair of jeans. When the man hit the porch light, the intruder looked up and looked just like the kid in the photo. The only difference was that his body was covered with white hair and his eyes looked kind of hollow. I decided to try a creek in the Cohutas, North Georgia, where three creeks merged at around 2600. Hoping to catch trout or one of the local base species, after driving to the location, spending quite a bit of time on dirt roads to get to there, it is very clear based on the overgrown parking lot and lack of trash or other signs of humans that this was not a frequently used trail. At the start of the trip, that's exactly what I was hoping for. As I begin to head down the trail, it becomes pretty clear the descent is much steeper than I expected from Google Maps. After descending roughly 800 over the stretch of a half mile, I'm already nearing what I think is the end of trout water, but as I mentioned earlier they have black bay species that live only in this area to target as well. The trail has completely flattened out and parallels the river which has several creeks feeding into from higher elevations, giving me hope the water will be cold enough. For the first two miles the creek is too narrow and shallow for me to even consider trying to fish it. As I make it further in, eventually enough creeks have merged that the water is consistently at least six inches deep, with little pools maybe a foot deep, stream is about six ten feet wide. Once I reached this point I began to fish the creek anywhere I could feasibly bushwhack to the bank there weren't many spots I was able to do this. 
The whole time I'm hiking and fishing, I'm keeping an eye out for any tracks or signs of bear activity, still a little on edge from running into a few the week prior, and knowing that the next person to come along won't just be ten minutes away like last week. Around the five-mile mark, I see my first sign that anything else has ever been out there. It's a track, three feet long, four fingers, two pads on the heel, no claws. Another fifty feet, another track. Fifty feet past that I come up to a two feet tall game trail that appears to lead to a bedding area for something. I'd assume the track belonged to a bobcat or coyote. No claws makes me think cat, but I'd think it was on the big side for a bobcat. At this point I hadn't had a bite and decide to head back to the truck. I reach the bottom of the hill to climb back the last stretch. I see a bad sign. The third set of tracks I see all day that are not mine or the ones I previously described belong to a bear. Two tracks. Several trees in the area have also had pieces of bark ripped off. Saplings were ripped up. Now all of the missing bark was facing downhill, so I convinced myself I just wasn't able to see it earlier, and I must have missed the tracks. This is about all I can come up with since that trail up is the only way out. Not even five steps into my ascent, I found the bear. As I was ninety degrees with a bush to my left, it roared and at least in my head, the entire bush shook when he did. I was close enough to touch the bush with my left arm. Unlike previous bear encounters at distance, where I was able to calmly stand my ground and then back off when that didn't work, I completely panicked. My first reaction was to turn my back to the bear and run before realizing what I was doing. As soon as I caught myself, I tuned back towards it, stood tall, arms out, and trying to talk as normally as possible as I retreated back 100 feet. As I'm standing here, I quickly realize I'm at a low spot on all four sides with zero visibility forward, backwards, or to my left two of the three directions I'd assume the bear would come from if it were to advance on me. Moving to my right by about 30 feet puts me on slightly higher ground, but also takes me off the trail and most likely further reduces my visibility. I decide standing right where I was while everything cooled down was not any better or worse than anything else I could do. After waiting 30 minutes on my watch after the initial bear encounter, I have not heard the bear in a while. I decide to test with a rock throw in its direction since I'm getting pretty tired of the calling. The bear very loudly lets me know it is still there. I remember how remote the area is, and that I did not see a single track or sign showing human life had ever been on the five miles I walked. Another thirty minutes go by both the fastest and slowest thirty minutes of my life. I repeat the process and it plays out exactly the same way, except five minutes later I hear the bear snort just a little to the left of where it had been. I wait another twenty minutes or so, and now something has changed. I try throwing a rock at the bear again, no reaction. I think I held it together walking past where the bear was, and then ran a two-minute half-mile straight uphill. With only five creek chubs to show for the whole ordeal, I will never be back to that area again. When I was a teenager, a guy was screaming for help in the woods. I still remember I just got home from a friend's. It was around 8 p.m. My parents kept trying to yell back, hello, 
and we are here things of that nature. He wouldn't respond. Just intermediate calls for help. When I first heard his scream, I immediately ran and hid in my bedroom. It was a blood-curdling scream. Gives me chills just thinking about it. Filled me with fear just hearing his scream. The next day everyone searched the woods and found nothing. Nothing was ever in the news. I will never understand. Why didn't he yell back? Where did he come from? We lived in the middle of nowhere. No close neighbors. Sometimes I think he was trying to lure us in. He would have seen our lights from our house. The woods was a hill. In May 2021, I took a trip to New Orleans, a city famous for its rich history and tales of the supernatural. We stayed at an Airbnb, a comfortable place that felt welcoming, if not a little old. One night, I woke up abruptly from a deep sleep, my gaze instinctively drawn to the bathroom. A peculiar certainty washed over me there was someone in the bathroom. I squinted into the semi-darkness, my vision blurred without my glasses. I could discern the shape of a man, standing eerily in the bathtub, his back turned to me. I blinked, rubbed my eyes, but the figure remained. I felt an icy chill run down my spine, but eventually, sleep reclaimed me. On the day of our departure, all of us left the Airbnb, except for one girl from our group who had a later flight. Later, she confided in us about a strange experience she had after we left. She heard the sound of footsteps echoing down the hallway, and then a whisper as soft as the rustling of leaves, slave. Intrigued and disturbed, she researched the history of the area where our Airbnb was located. To her surprise and horror, she discovered that the site was once a bustling slave trading post. The realization struck us all with a sense of dread and melancholy, a ghostly echo from the past intruding into our present. The haunting memories of our stay in that Airbnb lingered long after our trip, a chilling reminder of New Orleans' spectral past. The city, rich with history, had shared with us a glimpse into its dark past, a tale of sorrow and injustice that time had failed to erase.